Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us for episode 568 with Laura Stack. Laura is sharing some best and worst practices for prioritizing your tasks to get your productivity on. So you'll learn one, the six steps to optimizing your workflow, two, the five productivity personality archetypes, and three, how to work from home all the more effectively. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, it's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep568. And if you're visiting awesomeatyourjob.com, you might also check out the Gold Nugget email list, which has summary insights from Laura and all of the guests who have come before her. It's called the Gold Nuggets at awesomeatyourjob.com. And in particular, these five productivity personality archetypes, I think are just huge in terms of bringing some awareness to how are you choosing your next task and, and, and what trap are you falling for? That awareness has already been huge for me. So great stuff. And you can see that in summary written format with the gold nuggets at awesomeatyourjob.com. Now here's Laura's story. Laura Stack is a noted expert in employee and team productivity. She's also known by her moniker, The Productivity Pro. She's an award-winning keynote speaker and best-selling author of eight books. She's the president and CEO of The Productivity Pro, Inc., a boutique consulting firm helping leaders increase workplace performance in high-stress environments. Laura's been featured in the New York Times, USA Today, The Wall Street Journal, Entrepreneur, and Forbes Magazine. She's a high-content certified speaking professional, CSP, who educates, entertains, and motivates professionals to deliver bottom-line results. Big thanks to Laura for sharing her wisdom with us, and big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. And big thanks to our sponsor, Acorns. Acorns makes it easy to start automatically saving and investing for your future. You don't need a lot of money or expertise to invest with Acorns. In fact, you can get started with just your spare change. Acorns recommends an expert-built portfolio that fits you and your money goals, then automatically invests your money for you. NerdWallet.com, whom I love on these sorts of matters, gives Acorns a whopping 4.7 stars and says, quote, if you want to make the most of your spare change, there's no better place to do that than Acorns. Head to acorns.com slash awesome or download the acorns app to start saving and investing for your future today and we got a legal disclaimer here it may not be representative of all clients tier one compensation provided compensation provides an incentive to positively promote acorns view important disclosures at acorns.com awesome investing involves risk including the loss of principal please consider your objectives risk tolerance and acorns as fees before investing acorns advisors llc acorns is an sec registered investment advisor brokerage services are provided to clients of acorns by acorn securities llc member at finra slash sipc for more information visit acorns.com here is Laura. Laura, thanks for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thanks, Pete. Happy to be here. Well, I'm excited to chat with you. You are known as the Productivity Pro, and uh, we love talking to Productivity Pros. Okay, good. <laughs> so you're going to fit right in here. And I want to kick it off by hearing what is maybe your your nerdiest productivity practice? Is there anything that's sort of a guilty pleasure for you in the realm of productivity, whether it's apps or... <laughs> oh my, you're going to make me start by telling all my secrets. Well, let's see. I grew up in the military, in a military family. My father is a retired colonel. So I was raised on the Air Force Academy with the old adage of the colonel jumps and you say, how high? Mm -hmm. And so he came in for inspection you know, when we did our chores. And so my favorite productivity guilty pleasure is I make my bed every day. Yes, I do. With everything, pillows, European shams, big pillows, throw pillows. 
I just think it sets you up for success for the day. It feels good, helps you feel like things are in order, and you've already accomplished a goal before your day even begins. So I would suggest everybody make your bed. That's what I learned from the colonel. And I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued that you call it a guilty pleasure. In a way, it seems like the most opposite of guilty. (laughs) It's like, I feel guilty if I didn't do it. Well, most people don't make their bed. They just leave it like it is, or they will lightly toss things up. I have it neat, orderly, pulled, pinned corners. I mean, I make sure that in maybe it's a little OCD, but just not having anything on the bed when you approach your evening rituals and routines to go to bed and undoing the bed, it's oddly comforting just in the sense that it makes you kind of wind down and gives your brain a signal that it is now time to relax. So there's just something in the routine of beginning and the end of the day that helps you start and end your day well. That's uh, totally true. And it's it's a nice reminder, I think, at the end of the day. It's like, hey, well, I accomplished that. And it's it's a very welcoming sight to go on in there. Exactly. Yeah. And not just rumpled, you know, sheets that you just got out of. You just feel like there's no, uh, it's just one continuous getting into bed, getting out of bed. Eh, I like, I like rituals with beginning and end. It just feels good. Well, so we're going to dig into some of your productivity wisdom. And, and I want to get a touch of your hot takes on how that fits into this coronavirus working from home type context. But maybe before we get into, you know, the tools and the tactics and the strategies, the nitty gritty, could you maybe frame it up for us? How do you define productivity and and why does being more productive matter? Well, for me, productivity is all about value creation. So I don't look at it as how many things did you get checked off your list Uh, during the day? How many hours did you sit there? You know, how much running around and how busy you were, but the value that you created in the time that you spent. So it literally is a ratio if it could be measured, which is easier to do in manufacturing, you know, because you can count widgets, sales, you can have quotas. You know, it's a little bit harder when you're looking at office jobs, leadership roles, HR, So we'd like to look at the impact or the result or the value or the profitability or however your job is measured. So I like to think of it as achieving maximum results in minimum time. So Uh whatever that ratio would be, would be the most effective. So if you have 10 things to do, I know, wouldn't that be great? If you had that 10 things to do and you did nine of them, but left the one that was the most important or would have the most impact on your business or your job or your team, that would not be a productive day, even though you got nine out of the 10 things done. I'd much prefer you get three things done if one of them includes one of those high-value activities. Well, and what's kind of fun about that uh, flexible definition of of productivity and, and, you know, creating value and and achieving the goal is, I guess there are times, uh, maybe it's vacation or you know, just certain season of life in which mm-hmm. the value you're going for is is refreshment and rejuvenation and rest. Like that's right, <laughs> and, and you nailed it. That's why it depends how you measure it, because there are times where the most productive thing you can do is take care of yourself, mm-hmm. or relax, or spend time with a child, or go on vacation. And so those times of quote goofing off certainly are not at all. 
very valuable. So productivity can be measured in every aspect of our lives. You can even be productive at the gym. I mean, it's easy to waste an hour at the gym and you just loll around, wander, hardly work, don't sweat, talk to your friends, a couple half-hearted leg lifts. I mean, I can kill an hour at a gym, but it certainly wasn't very productive use of my time. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Well, so so you got a number of books and and the title I love the most is What to Do When There's Too Much to Do. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes. Boy, I can relate to that. Very popular. Everyone loves that title. My first book was titled Leave the Office Earlier. So that is probably the only title that ever beat What to Do When There's Too Much to Do. It makes people say, yep, that's me. I need that book. So yeah, that's a good one. Well, so the the subtitle there is to reduce tasks, increase results, and save 90 minutes a day. Can you maybe walk us through, yeah, how does one do exactly that? Well, I mean, there's a lot that goes into that. And of course, we'll be able to go into every aspect in this time together. But, you know, essentially saving 90 minutes a day, what I want people to really focus on is, let's say I am working 65 hours a week. I mean, I am just exhausted, all this COVID stuff. I'm in in my home office all the time and putting in extra hours. Whereas other people right now are slow. They're almost some of them bored, I have heard, and trying to fill eight hours a day. So for some people, that definition means if you're working a ton of hours, how can I be more efficient? How can I systematize? How can I automate? How can I streamline, delegate, eliminate? So the goal there would be to, if I could save an hour a day, maybe I could get it down to 60 hours a week. So that would be a great outcome. And so now I get out of the office a little bit earlier, right? So maybe that's your goal versus other people who are clocking their 40 hours. Maybe they actually want to accomplish greater results than they're doing now in the same amount of time. So for some people, it means actually reducing the number of hours they're working. And for other people, it could mean increasing the value that they produce in the time that they're working. And so every person will approach that question just a little bit differently. But ultimately, that's the whole goal of a concept of what to do when there's too much to do. And I break it down into six different steps. And I'm not sure how much of that you want to go through in our time together, just in terms of what I call the productivity workflow formula. Well, yes, I I would love to spend a minute or two on on each of these steps so we can get oriented and, and think about things the way you do. Okay, great. Yeah. So I look at work coming in as a constant flow. So if you can picture it as a circle with arrows, sadly, the workflow never stops, correct? So it just continues to come in. So first, we have to figure out step one is what do we need to do? You have to determine what to do. So how do you get your arms around the world of all of your to-dos? And for many people, that's a challenge because they have some things written on a sticky note. They have some things that somebody texted them. Then they've got their email and they've got calls and voicemail. Plus now they have social media and I've got an inbox here and an inbox there. And Many people feel very disjointed with many of their inputs living in several different places, and they don't really have 
one system, one way that they can get their arms around everything so that they can even determine what to do. So Uh that's the first step is getting that piece organized. And then after that, you've got to figure out when am I going to do it? And so there is a prioritization. There's a scheduling. There's a what can I realistically fit in and what is going to get done and when. So that's step two. And then step three is how do we actually focus? We know what to do. We've got a little block of time and we sit down to work on it and our attention is all over the place. So I really believe that concentration is a long lost art, especially many of us trying to work at home. It becomes even more challenging. And then step four is we have to find the information that we need to do the work. And that's where if people have overflowing inboxes, uh, poor filing methods, and they can't put their hands on what they want when they want it, they get stuck on that step. And then the last piece of the loop, and there are six steps, but the fifth step in the loop is to close the loop. So it's actually getting work done, turning things in, being efficient, actually trying to maximize how efficiently they can do work. I've had people in my office actually watching me work. And so there are systems pieces that you can use to tighten up your efficiency. And then the last step is managing your own capacity. So if you got a really bad night's sleep last night because you didn't make your bed, maybe, no, I'm kidding, but you got a bad night's sleep, you're not going to feel like being energetic and productive, you're going to want to put your head on the desk and take a nap. And so self-care becomes a critically important component of managing one's productivity. So that's kind of the foundation on which everything is based. Without those proper self-care habits, you will not have the energy that you need to devote to your work, to your family, to your loved ones, etc. So that, in a nutshell, Pete, is the productivity workflow formula. Okay, thank you. I, I dig it. Well, let's dig in in particular to uh, steps two and three, the prioritization and then scheduling. Sure. And then the three, the, the focus concentration bit. So when it comes to prioritization, I mean... You know, I'm a big believer in the 820 rule, and indeed, some things truly are 16 times as important as others. <laughs> but how do you go about thinking, asking the questions, making the calls in terms of, ah, yes, this is in fact way more important than that? How do you get there? Well, I think we all intuitively know what is more important than what. The problem that I see with the way that people prioritize is their tendency to select tasks incorrectly. And there's a a lack of awareness about what people choose to do next. It doesn't really matter what system you use to prioritize. I mean, I use Microsoft Outlook tasks because I like being able to drag a task up and down in the task list and reprioritizing very quickly and just accomplishing things in order of importance. It doesn't matter. You don't have to use tasks. Some people use paper list with the top three sticky note. You know, they put on a sticky note the top three things they need to do in a day. Other people use an app, Todoist. There are so many different methodologies that people use to track their priorities. What I like to look at instead 
is your typical pattern in how you're going about creatively procrastinating about not doing those priorities. So there are five main kind of priority personality archetypes that I see. The first type of person picks things based upon what they feel like working on. So you know that there's this really important thing that you need to do, but People who have this personality tend to pick things based on what's fun or easy or quick because they like that, that shot of dopamine they get when they check something off a list and it gives them this real sense of accomplishment, right? So they're busy, busy bees. These people just check stuff off because they love that, but they are purposefully leaving the thing that is the most important, and they leave the office each day going, I did it again. I still didn't get to that really important project. And of course they could, but it is a self-fulfilling prophecy. The next type of person does things based on how they appear. So in accounting, we call this FIFO, right? First in, first out. So this type of person is a reactive person. They react to things as they come in. They get a text, they answer it. They get an email, they answer it. They get a call, they answer it, right? So they are pretty much letting other people control their schedules, which other people are really good at doing, and they're not proactive instead. The third type of person prioritizes based on who's yelling loudest. This type of person does not have good boundaries. They don't have good verbal skills around letting people know what the expectations are, what they can do, what they can't, what they will do, what they won't. And they allow that old adage, the squeaky wheel gets the grease and people have their number and they know they are too nice. And so they end up doing things that are not the most important priority. The fourth type of person tends to do things as they think of them. So this type of person kind of talks to themselves constantly. And as they think of things, ooh, I need to call Pete about that call next week. Ooh, I'm going to get on and talk to Pete. And they just make the call. So as they think of things, they just do it regardless of whether or not it's the most important thing. And it tends to be because they're afraid they're going to forget if they don't do it, even though they know it's not necessarily a high priority right then. And then the last person does things by the order of the sticky note. So this type of person is a very random approach. It could look like they have ADHD when you look at them. They have like 17 browser tabs open and seven half started emails and four Excel spreadsheets and two Word documents. And you're just like, what are you working on? And they're like, I don't know. I just, you know, just got stuck everywhere. They've got papers lined up in a certain order. Oh, here's that business card. I should call this guy. You know, it's just all over. So just a different, a disorganized type of approach. So those, Pete, are the five patterns of people that I see and, and they're kind of quasi-prioritization methods. So, you know, we really need to think about our patterns have awareness around them to be able to say, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. Oh my gosh, I'm doing it, right? Catch yourself doing it. Stop yourself from doing that and really work on what I call triage. It's just like 
in a hospital when a patient shows up, they don't necessarily get treated first in the ER, right? I mean, you could sit there for four hours because other people come in with issues that are more urgent and more critical than yours. And it doesn't matter if you say, well, I was here first, right? It doesn't matter. (laughs) This patient has a higher need, so there's more value if we treat this patient. So if you think of your office like an emergency room and prioritize, it sounds bad, based on which patient would die first, (laughs) that's really the way to look at things. Because if you don't do this step today, right, this step three days from now is going to be behind. And so we really have to look at what's going to cause suffering in our lives and work on it that way. As humans, we like to do emotionally what we like. And that, by and large, is a really bad way to prioritize, Pete. Laura, this is, this is so excellent in that most people, myself included, when I tackle this issue, it's sort of like, okay, well, here are the paradigms by which you might assess important tasks that are worthy mm-hmm. of high priority. And so maybe it's, you know, the results that you're after divided by the effort required, like the hours, and, and maybe it's profit per hour, or, or maybe it's uh, like the one thing question. Yeah, it could be. And it depends on your job. Yeah, how that could be measured. But in practice, when the, when the rubber meets the road day in, day out, you might know that. And if, if you don't know that, I guess that's, that's the first step. Have those conversations with your boss and, and take a moment, take a breath, have some, do some thinking about what really, really, really matters. But then in, in your day-to-day reality, you got to watch out and play defense in, in terms of, of these tendencies, none of which are conducive to doing what actually matters. Yeah. And that assumes, of course, that you have had a conversation with your manager, because if not, you are guessing at best, and you're going to choose things based on emotion, which is generally not a good way to make decisions. So assuming you've had those conversations, you have to understand, I call it P-R-O-I, personal return on investment. What is my personal return on my investment of time in doing this activity for my results, my value as an employee? So if your company is pumping all these resources into you, you have to look at is what I'm doing right now, the highest and best use of my time that has the greatest personal return on my investment of time right now. I mean, when the rubber hits the road, Everybody has all these fancy systems and they're all trying to, you know, one, two, three, A, B, C. It's like, oh my gosh, just really looking at if you had to just put everything aside. And a lot of people are experiencing this. Projects that were pet projects, all of a sudden, there is no time for that, right? And we are focused on critical work. And when it all gets stripped away, that's the stuff that we need to really be doing. Beautiful. Thank you. All right. So that's the prioritization bit in terms of not falling for five suboptimal approaches that we often fall for (laughs) in terms of prioritizing and scheduling. Well, how do we maintain that focus concentration piece? Well, I look at, it depends on the environment. It depends on what your, what your goal is. And if you are a person who needs, in my case, I like silence to focus. Whereas my 18 year old son has music going when he's working on homework. And I personally can't understand how someone can listen to music because it makes me in my head sing along and do do the lyrics and all that. But he really just gets in his own and is able 
to hone in on his work when he's got that outside music going. And so part of focus is kind of looking at you personally. What are the things that are distracting to you? Because you may not find the music distracting. So I look at kind of four different categories, having each person analyze this for themselves. I use the acronym TYPE, T-Y-P-E, four types of distractions that prevent us from focusing. One is technology, the T. So having your cell phone, not just on vibrate where, you know, it goes up on the desk and you have this obsessive compulsive desire to check it. We we have this insatiable curiosity. You know, we have to know, oh, what is it? You know, but if you've got your email notifications going off, your phone going off, apps, notifications, different beeps and buzzes and whistles, it's not a wonder we can't focus and get an article written for a half hour or whatever it is that we're trying to do. So We have to create kind of a bubble around ourselves, you know, forward the phone, turn the phone on, stun, you know, it needs to be off, not just on uh, buzz or vibrate. I have all my notifications turned off in my email. If you go into your options, the default in Outlook, for example, is that every time you get one email, you get four alerts, plays a sound, puts an envelope in the system tray, You get an alert, a pop-up alert, and it has the cursor spin. Really? We need four four alerts for one email? So if you go in and turn those off, at first it kind of freaks most people out because they can actually focus for more than six minutes if they keep their inbox minimized and they're not checking them as they're coming in. But then better yet... You can set a rule that says, hey, every time I get an email from this person, maybe it's your manager or someone on your team or an important client, then I want you to play a sound. So you begin to use technology to help you determine what's important and not be distracted by the rest. The why is yourself. (laughs) Are you distracted? Are you doing it to yourself? You know, so people who follow trails on the internet or, ooh, I wonder what this is and click there. And now they're looking at this and, oh, here's a video. Let me watch this, right? I mean, we sometimes are our own worst enemies because we just go down a huge trail of distraction. And so keeping yourself focused, if you have to put your dog away because you're going to play with your dog, if you've got to close the browser while you're doing this because you're going to be tempted to click on Facebook, I mean, whatever it is for you, you have to use a lot of self-discipline in that area. Well, yeah, can we hear a bit more about that? So self-discipline, you know, mm-hmm. kind of put it away, close it. What are some other approaches to to prevent yourself from running wild? Yeah. My dad, the colonel, used to say, discipline is doing what you know you need to do, even if you don't feel like it. And so figuring out how to train yourself to do the tasks that you dread, because those are the ones you naturally are going to procrastinate on. And we can find all kinds of things suddenly to do. Oh, I need to go throw in a load of laundry when we're faced with a task that we don't feel like working on, but that we know we need to focus on. And so it could be doing a leading task. It could say, okay, I'm just going to start this for five minutes 
And if I don't feel like doing it in five minutes, I'm going to make a cup of tea and I'm going to come back and try it again for another five minutes. So sometimes some people just need to get a little momentum to get that self motivation and get off that hump. Maybe it's uh, a little reward. Some people's discipline gets better if they know there's kind of a light at the end of the tunnel, right? Instead of calling your best friend, you'd say to yourself, once I complete this task and focus on X, then I will call my best friend, right? Or whatever's rewarding to you. It might be a quick rock around the block. Maybe I'll eat this piece of dark chocolate, you know, uh, whatever it is that, that will help you be more disciplined. So discipline is still is being able to do something after the feeling of excitement when you first created the task has passed. <laughs> now it's like, okay, that was fun being creative, but now I actually need to get the work done. So those are a few important things in discipline. Well, and I think it's great just if you could just get real honest with yourself in, in terms of what's happening is I don't want to do this thing. Sure. And thusly, I'm tempted to do these other things. It just to be as opposed to, because I think it's so, I've done it, it's so possible to deceive yourself. Like that laundry really needs to get done now, Laura. Oh, <laughs> and especially at home. We can find all kinds of things to do. And having structure and treating your workday as if you're in the office, I think is really important for discipline. I have worked from home for 28 years and I never show up in my quote office in my robe and slippers. It just doesn't make me feel sharp. I'm not on, on top of my game. It makes me feel lazy. And so it just depends on the person. Whereas other people go, gosh, Laura, that's not me at all. You know, when I work from home and I stay in my robe all day, you should see me go, right? So you do have to kind of understand your personality, your style, your nature, and work with that too. Sometimes it's not discipline. It could be energy level. Maybe you're not a morning person. So people think, I don't know what's wrong with me. I just, I'm lazy. I lack motivation. I just can't get going. Well, maybe it's because you're not a morning person and you, you are trying to do the wrong task at the wrong time. And it's not a matter of discipline at all. It's a matter of energy management. You know, maybe you're better at two o'clock in the afternoon or, or some people get a rush of energy at 7 p.m. So maybe adjusting your schedule to work around some of those constraints will help you a little more. Okay. Well, let's see. So there's type and you get the, the technology, we got the yourself and how about the PE? And P is people. I mean, all you right. could be so much more productive if it weren't for all these people, right? All right. So, you know, I have kids like many of us do and they knew from a very young age, they're grown now, our youngest is 18, but they knew from a very young age, if mom had the, I call them their cube guards, you can you know, like they use in the airport when they're cleaning a restroom, those tapes that they pull across. I had one of those installed in my hallway to my office. So if the tape was pulled, I mean, even when they were five and six years old, my boys knew don't come into mom's office because she's on a call or she's concentrating. We always told them someone better be bleeding if you come through the cube guard, through the tape. So you have to really talk with the people in your family so that they understand, hey, this is work. I'm working. Like I'm not 
at home. I mean, yes, we have more flexibility, I think. And certainly if we have young children who are being homeschooled and things like that, we have very different constraints that we're dealing with. But by and large, we have to set limits with people in our lives. My mother was just guilty of, she's retired, right? So it's one o'clock in the afternoon, I'll just call Laura, you know, so it took some time to not hurt her feelings, but explain, listen, I, I want to talk with you. And can we talk in the evenings, right? Because I'm working. This is not a good use of my time. I personally don't want to be back in my office working at night. Now, maybe other people like it that way. They like being able to blur the boundaries and they would rather have some personal time with a loved one in the middle of the day mm-hmm. and then do some work at night. Is it right, wrong, good, bad? No, right? It's just different. And so you have to look at the people when we're back in traditional offices. A lot of that has to do with coworkers who just drop in. Hey, got a minute, right? And so setting it, you know, letting them know, hey, can I call you at two? Or can you send me a meeting request? Can you get me on my calendar so I can give that some thought? You know, being able to kind of push back in a way that says yes to the person, but no to the interruption uh, so that we can stay focused on those things that are critically important. And then the last one's the environment. Tell us about the environment. Well, I work in a home office and so I have a dog. So if I am uh, working and a postal, you know, a a UPS comes to the door and rings the bell, my dog's going to set off barking. Now I've got to go get the dog, you know, take care of the package. Boom. I just had an interruption. So we have a sign underneath our ring doorbell, uh, strangely, that says, do not ring, please. And so (laughs) when they don't ring the bell, my dog doesn't bark and I'm not interrupting my flow, my concentration. I can go get that package whenever. In other words, we allow things in the environment to dictate our schedules and we react to things as they happen. So we have to just notice in our environments, just look around, listen, smell, see, figure out those things that are really drawing your attention and see if you can proactively put some things in place to keep that from happening again. Yeah, I think that's excellent. And I think packages are are ideal there in terms of, do we need a knock at the door or or a ring of the doorbell? Or or can we just make that instruction clear to drop it, leave it, it's okay. UPS, my choice, whatever. Uh, Inform them, hey, this is what's up. Yeah, I could get five packages a day, literally. So if I'm one at a time going to the door to stop my dog from having a meltdown and get a package five times versus when my day is over, one time I'm going to get five packages. That is a far better use of my time. And it allows me to keep my focus. So you have to look at every time your attention got pulled in another direction. What was it? What was that cause? I have beautiful bay windows in my office. I don't even face that way, Pete. I face the wall. And the windows are actually to my back because 
people walk by. I'm daydreaming, right? (laughs) Beautiful sunny weather here in Denver, and I get distracted. My mom says I have OSS. She calls that, ooh, shiny syndrome. So I have to really set myself up so that all of those external stimulus aren't grabbing my brain. Well said. Well, Laura, we covered a lot of good stuff, having a lot of fun. Maybe we'll just say rapid fire. Can you give us perhaps your top one or two best practices and worst practices for folks finding themselves in a work from home situation for the first time? Yeah. I mean, I think structure is really key. If you have never worked from home, some people aren't prepared for it. It can be lonely. It can be mentally boring because you don't have all the same activity and you find yourself, huh, wow, I didn't have that commute. So I have some extra time here. So I would, first of all, resist the urge to cram more in, right? In other words, if you left the house at seven to start work at eight, still start work at eight. Don't let that time creep kind of make your day from eight hours into 10 hours. That's very easy to do in a home office. So I would then say set some boundaries, because it's very easy to let your work life blur into your personal life because now you're in an office that might be your bedroom or the dining room or the kitchen, right? And so we have to try to put a little bit of structure in so that we can know when we're working so that we can stay focused uh, and when we're not. And when we're not working, we don't want to be, oh, I'll just do a couple more emails and boom, here we are. I'm back at work again. So as much as possible, I would try to keep some routine and some structure. I'm looking forward to beauty salons being open again, (laughs) for example. So I go get my nails done and my hair. But, you know, I never do those things during the day. I treat my office like it's any other workplace, even though I'm at home. And I go do those things when I'm off work on my lunch hour or on the weekends, just like anybody else would do. So I think trying to create a little bit of routine around that is helpful. Beautiful. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Well, one of my favorites is Drucker, Peter Drucker, who wrote The Effective Executive, which if you have not read it yet, it is just an evergreen book. I've read it probably 30 times uh, when I was working on my MBA many, many years ago. But he said, there is nothing so useless as doing with great efficiency that which should not be done at all. Beautiful. Thank you. (laughs) That's one of my favorites. And how about a favorite study or experiment or a bit of research? Well, I am always looking at how can we create Uh, greater value. And I think that by looking at what is more valuable, the flip side of that to me is getting into groups with your team and with your boss and asking the opposite question, which is kind of a qualitative study that anybody can do in the workplace to say, what are the things that we're doing around here that don't add value, that waste our time? And you got to have a little bit of thick skin if you decide you want to do this type of research internally, because people are going to tell you, they'll let you know. And looking at what are some processes that we put into place maybe three years ago that aren't necessary? What is a document that 
we create that nobody even looks at. I have a newsletter that I used to do monthly, and it took me a day to write the newsletter. It was a 2,500-word article. I did links. I did polls. I did research. I mean, it was a really great newsletter. And one year, I got the flu here in Denver and couldn't do the newsletter and told my team, I'm sorry, we're just not going to be able to do it this month. And I know you're going to hear it from people. Everybody's going to complain that we haven't done the newsletter. I got three people who even noticed that it didn't come out. And in asking people, they said, you know what? It just, it's so long. It takes so much time for me to go through it. And couldn't, you're a productivity company. I'm like, oh, right. So maybe we just need a paragraph. So I switched from one day a month to 20 minutes a week. Engagement shot up, readership shot up, right? So don't keep doing the things the way that you have been doing them. If you're doing it the same way two years later, it probably needs to be revamped. So those are my favorite kind of studies to do and lead with workplace teams because they yield usually some pretty dramatic results. And beyond the effective executive, any other favorite books you'd highlight? Well, I would recommend reading non business books. I like to read classics. I have a collection of books from the Easton Press, which I spent, well, there's a hundred of them and you buy them one a month. And so it took me a very long time to complete the collection, but they're all leather bound. And it was what they voted on the top 100 books, you know, so Gulliver's Travels and Charles Dickens and Pride and Prejudice. And so I think it's really important for us to kind of expand outside of the typical business book that we really read and read other things that aren't in your field. It really expands your creativity and field of thinking. And how about a favorite tool, something you use to be awesome at your job? Well, I told you I love Microsoft Outlook, so that is my favorite tool to organize tasks. But I have a a really nifty uh, text replacement utility that I like that's called Short Keys, Short Keys, S-H-O-R-T-K-E-Y-S. So basically, you code pieces of text that you type all the time, like ST prints out my street name in any application, in the web, in a Word document. So I actually type very quickly because a lot of the words that I use all the time, I use as short keys. So it really helps you fly and never retype the same thing twice. And is there a particular nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate and folks quote back to you often? Oh, I always use creating maximum results in minimum time. You know, that's productivity. What is your personal return on your investment of time in doing certain activities? There's certain philosophies that I have, I guess, around that productivity workflow formula that a lot of people use. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? Well, they're welcome to connect with me on Facebook, LinkedIn, wherever. But my website is theproductivitypro.com. Okay. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? Well, I would just remind everyone to really watch their own 
energy level, if you're not eating well, sleeping well, exercising, taking care of yourself, a lot of people think that when they're busy and they don't have time, that that is one of the things that gets cut. And I think that's exactly the wrong approach because the better you feel and the more you take care of yourself, the greater your energy level will be to focus on other people and your work. So really resist that tendency to just be a bump on a log. Sometimes the last thing we feel like doing when we come home from work is some exercise, but gosh, a quick few walks around the block will give you so much more energy that you need going into that evening to go into your second shift, right, of home life and getting some of those things done. Laura, thanks so much. This has been a treat. I wish you lots of luck in all your productive adventures. Thank you so much for having me, Pete. I appreciate the offer. Boy, I loved Laura's take on those six prioritizing productivity personality archetypes in terms of, you know, it just shines a real clear light on what are you doing instead of what you should be doing. And, and to be able to acknowledge that because I'm choosing this because it's easy. I'm choosing this because I feel like doing it as opposed to doing this because it has the, the biggest impact results. And to remember, I think we heard this from Mary Abajay's episode managing how to manage your manager. The one about managing up is to get super clear on what's really important in terms of your goals, the organization's goals, the team goals, your boss's goals, so that you are able to choose those high priority things and then keep them front and center and not succumb to one of the other temptations of lesser priority items. Great stuff from Laura. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F568. If you haven't already, I hope you'll push subscribe to catch our next guest. It is Dr. Joshua Claypow. He's known as Dr. Disaster because he's a psychologist brought in when disasters occur with some very insightful tidbits on anxiety, stress, mental health, productivity amidst this coronavirus business and really anytime they're under high stress. So hope to get you there in peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.